time with be or thine be the glory. more than conquerors rule. 
Amen. <laughs> you may say, you may let them know that. <laughs> Thanks be to God who gives us voices like that, the most wonderful musical instrument of all. And there's some other good instruments too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks be to God for giving us songs to sing, for giving us songs in our heart, joy in a world that is difficult. Thanks be to God this day. Thanks be to God for this day of all days, the day of resurrection. It's been a difficult year. This is perhaps for many, many churches uh, the first time we've celebrated Easter for two years. We were caught just at the point of, in, in the Lenten season, and churches had to scramble to respond to the COVID virus as the world did and may not have been able to get our live streaming up quickly. Uh, thanks to our associate pastor, Tyler, this church got going very quickly. I don't know whether it was for Easter last year. Not good, good. Uh, but um, it's wonderful to be together this Easter. And we are glad to see the the world beginning to come back together, and um, we praise God for that. We began uh, our Lenten series six weeks ago, six Sundays ago, uh, with the story of God's love in creation. And it has brought us very rapidly uh, up to this day of resurrection, from creation to resurrection. And this is a wonderful time that churches around the world in all types of settings, every language, are celebrating together God's great gift of new life in Christ. Before we read our sermon text this morning, um, let us pray for God to give us understanding of the words he has caused to be written. Let us pray. Loving God, we do thank you for speaking to us for loving us so much that you meant for us to communicate, for us to hear you and us to respond to you. 
for you to even help us put words on our lips. We thank you for causing your words to us to be written by faithful servants of old. Caused your written words to be translated from one language to another over many generations. We thank you for those who translated your word from one language to another. We thank you for giving us your spirit to help us understand your word. We thank you for calling for us to seek and to listen and we will find and we will hear. Thank you for forgiving us for our laziness and our distractions to so many other things. Help us hear your word this morning, O Lord, from these wonderful passages. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Our sermon lesson this morning, one of the uh, great Easter texts taken from uh, the gospel according to Luke, chapter 23, verse 50, through chapter 24, verse 12. Let us listen to God's word for us this morning. Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph, who though a member of the council had not agreed to their plan and action, he came from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and laid it in a rock-hewn tomb where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee, come with Jesus from Galilee, not Joseph, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up 
and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home amazed at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. This is the word through Luke. As there was a word through Mark. As there was a word through Matthew. As there was a word through John. But how can we trust them? We are staking everything, our lives, on this resurrection. The world criticizes us. It's impossible. Death cannot be overcome. How can we trust these words? It may seem that modern science challenges the word of God. But if we're careful, we will hear that modern science has also confirmed the word of God. There are many illustrations of this. I have more to share in coming sermons. I will not give them all to you this morning. (laughs) But I give you a tidbit, a clue, one of many that are in Scripture that we are finding now, even with modern tools, that we have to do research and to inspect things that there are clues throughout the Scripture that it is what it says. It is true. It was written by whom said, it is said that wrote it. I give you uh, one example from Luke to show you the reliability of that great follower of Jesus. He was called the beloved physician. Luke reported what the disciples saw in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus woke them up. From Luke twenty-two twenty-four, In his anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling on the ground. For centuries... Christians read that. Unbelievers may have read that. How could that be? It was amazing. And in modern times, that phenomenon has been given a word. I will try to pronounce it. Hematidrosis. Hema, the word for blood. Tidrosis, I don't know. (laughs) But hematidrosis is the word that modern medicine has given for the very rare phenomenon when a person is enduring extreme distress. In this state, the subcutaneous blood vessels rupture into the exocrine sweat glands, causing the sweat to look like drops of blood. This condition, this understanding of it, was totally unknown in the first century. This story could not have been made up. But Luke's account of the death and resurrection of Jesus is accompanied by four other written descriptions of eyewitnesses. The eyewitness of Peter, 
given to us in the gospel according to Mark. The eyewitness of Matthew, the tax collector who gave his heart and life to Jesus. The eyewitness of John, the fourth and final of the gospel accounts. And also the eyewitness of Paul, who was not an eyewitness of Jesus for those three years as the twelve were and many other disciples, but became an eyewitness to the, to the glory of Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus when Jesus interrupted the chief persecutor of the church in the early weeks and months and called Paul from the wrong direction to the right direction. And Paul became one of the great proclaimers of the gospel, explainers of the gospel. Paul wrote this, and it is found in the first letter of Paul to the Corinthian church, chapter 15. Paul writes, Right wrote, for I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That was actually the first written account of the resurrection, for it appeared in that letter approximately 55 AD, and the first A gospel, according to Mark, did not appear for another 10 years, approximately. Paul gave a partial list, but the other four writers gave us the details of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. Not to mention all the accounts of his birth, ministry, and death. And these remarkable witnesses have been copied, translated, studied, debated, disbelieved, and passionately trusted to change millions of lives and whole nations for the past 2,000 years. We are here this morning and every Easter morning in great part because of their faithful and costly testimony about the resurrection of Jesus. There could have been no resurrection, though, without the crucifixion. And the death of Jesus resulted in his burial. Suddenly, in God's word, a new name entered the story of Jesus. A man named Joseph. And all four accounts of the gospel tell his story. He was from the Jewish town of Arimathea. You might say, weren't they all? No, they were not. There were Gentile towns. There were Greek towns in Israel. 
as the world was changing in the Roman Empire. Joseph was a rich man. He was a respected man, one of the gospel writers tells us. He was a good and righteous man, Luke said. And by the way, in Luke's gospel, Joseph was the only one called a good and righteous man. He was a man who was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. He was a member of the ruling Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, but he had not agreed to their plan and action, as Luke said, which produced the crucifixion of Jesus. Mark wrote that Joseph went boldly to Pilate. It was not an easy thing to approach a Roman governor and ask for anything. He asked for the body of Jesus and laid Jesus in his own tomb in a garden close to, the, uh, to, uh, to where Jesus had been crucified. This tomb was cut out of rock and no one had been buried in it yet. This Joseph was like that first Joseph about 18 centuries before. And both of them were prepared by God to serve a great purpose that had lasting consequences. Three things made Joseph of Arimathea uniquely suited and called for what he did. First, only someone respected as Joseph could gain access to Pilate. And only Pilate could permit this crucified man to be removed from his cross before his decaying corpse could horrify people for days. Number two, only someone with Joseph's wealth could build a tomb of that size in that location which enabled a quick burial. Only 2% of the thousands of ancient tombs of Judea studied by archaeologists had entrances large enough to require a large round stone which had to be rolled to open the tomb or close the tomb. 98% of all of the tombs they have uncovered and investigated were small. You had to get down on your hands and knees and crawl into them. They were covered by a simple square stone. But when a tomb was large enough for a prestigious family, it would serve them for generations. The opening to it was large. It had to be covered by a very large stone. And if it were square, they would have never be able to remove it. So they took the extra time, the extra cost, to make a round stone and cut a groove that the stone would roll in. That was not common. It was not, not the way for 98% of tombs. Joseph's tomb had been prepared already for himself. But he came 
out of hiding. He came out of hiding, one of the disciples says, because he was a secret disciple of Jesus. As we believe Nicodemus was, his colleague in the Sanhedrin, another Sadducee in the council, who came to Jesus by night and asked Jesus about life, to whom Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. At the death of Jesus, the gospel writers together tell us that Joseph came and went to Pilate to ask for the body, and he and perhaps his servants took the body down off the cross, wrapped it in a cloth, and Nicodemus joined Joseph in burying Jesus. Tombs and ossuaries work together. As a side note, in the centuries around the time of Christ in Israel, bodies were laid in tombs to decay. A year or two later, the family would enter and collect the bones and place them in an a stone box with a lid on it, engraved with the name of their loved one. And it would go from being a body this big to a collection of bones put in that stone box called an ossuary. Those were then kept in the tomb, but placed under the shelves on which the latest body of the family was laid. That's how they carried forth the burial of their loved ones in those days. The third reason that Joseph of Arimathea was uniquely suited for this is that he was well known by the opponents of Jesus, those who demanded and brought about his death by execution. The leading, the rulers of the Jewish religious system, the temple, um, all of the people under the Roman rule, the Sanhedrin. Joseph was one of them. They knew him well. They would certainly have known where his tomb was. They would have talked, did you see the big tomb that Joseph is building down there? It would have been easily available for all of those opponents of Jesus to have produced the decaying body with its unique wounds. Being buried in Joseph's tomb was a specific place well known. No one could say it was hidden. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus begins with the empty tomb, but it became undeniable with multiple appearances of the resurrected Jesus to many followers. A fabricated story in the first century Jerusalem would never have invented a group of women as the key first witnesses. Three of them are named here in Luke's account, as well as the other three accounts of the gospel. Mary Magdalene, who had followed him 
throughout his ministry. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the chief steward of Herod, the tetrarch over Galilee. Imagine her following Jesus and another Mary, the mother of James and John. And Luke says there were other women who joined them in going to that tomb that morning. The third body of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus has been the changed lives of those who believed in him. That literally began with Joseph of Arimathea. For the resurrection changed all of those who believed in Jesus. From doubting to believing. From running to proclaiming. The death and resurrection of Jesus dramatically changed both followers and opponents of Jesus. Like Saul of Tarsus, the chief persecutor, the one who presided over the death of Stephen, his stoning there in Jerusalem, who became Paul, the great apostle. The apostles and early Christians defended the truth of the resurrection not with swords, but with love. The number of those who followed Christ grew by thousands and millions. Not because those who would not believe were slaughtered, but because those who did believe were martyred. The death of Christ solved our problem of sin. The resurrection of Christ solved our problem of death. The death of Christ qualified us for eternal life in the kingdom of God. The resurrection of Christ assured us that we will inherit the kingdom of God and that we are of such value to God that God would draw us to live with him forever. The resurrection of Jesus transformed our physical death from, from an absolute end to an amazing new beginning. According to the Apostle John, Jesus said these words to his disciples following that last supper the night before he was crucified. You have heard these words I hope uh, at uh, many of the memorial services and funerals that you have attended. John 14.1 Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in me. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Every you in these sentences is a plural you, a you all. 
Jesus was speaking to all of them and to all of us. But to all of us means to each of us. You should hear Jesus speaking to each of you as they did. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and take you to myself. But what was Jesus saying to them and us? What is that place he told them he would prepare for them? Did they think of dwelling places, rooms, as the word in Greek is? Did they think of mansions, as the King James put it? Did they look around Jerusalem and look at the finest homes and say, I hope he's preparing one of those for me? Did they think in terms of this world instead of the next world? I I, want to share with you this morning that I think the emphasis is on preparing us for the place. I don't conceive of Jesus busy for the last 2,000 years doing construction work in a heavenly city. I think we have to listen carefully to what Jesus was saying. I think Jesus was referring to where he was going that very next morning on the cross where he would make us fit for that place and thus it would be a place for us, each of us. And when he appeared to them that third day, that was him coming again to take you to myself, to embrace them, to embrace us, so that where he is, we will be also. As Kristen prepares to sing, let me close with this. The disciple Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And you know Jesus' response. I, I am the way and the life and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except me. We should never think of places, mansions. We should think in the near and dear presence of the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the creator of the universe who draws us into an intimate relationship for eternity which is going to be more more amazing than we can imagine. If God prepared this with all of its beauty and complexity, God has prepared something amazing for us to enjoy with him for eternity. 
in his resurrection appearances, Jesus came to take them to himself. On that Pentecost morning, six weeks, seven weeks later, Jesus came again to take them to himself. When we put our faith in him, Jesus took us to himself. At his second coming, Jesus comes again and will take others to himself. Jesus has made a place for you. And Jesus has made a place for those you have loved dearly who are not with you this morning, who are not alive this morning. Our flowers this morning have been provided by members of our congregation. And there are 53 mothers and fathers, wives and husbands, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters whom we have laid in a tomb. Do you think the assurance of resurrection means everything to us? Absolutely. He has risen. He has risen indeed. Amen. Oh